When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week's podcast is dedicated to two reviewers on iTunes, to the person who calls themselves I Went By Bus Until, who said the podcast used to be good but is becoming pathetic, and goes on to talk about mouths being stuffed with plums and calling for me to be sacked, and also the person who calls themselves, well, it could be worse, and says this podcast is a good middle way between the muesli eaters and the poor haters on other outlets. Welcome to you both. Uh, this week I'm joined by Times Deputy Political Editor Sam Coates, who thinks Theresa May's popularity could be her downfall. Time Defence Editor Deborah Haynes on how to keep the Navy afloat, but first Times columnist Hugo Rifkin on the newest party leader in town. In choosing Paul Mussel as their new leader, UKIP has done the sensible thing, perhaps for the first time ever. He aims to reach out to disaffected Labour voters. But is he really that politician and can UKIP really be that party? Now we're leaving the EU and even the Conservative Party is anti-elite, is there any point to UKIP at all? So it was quite a spectacle, Hugo, when we saw Paul Nuttall being announced at the latest, just this month's UKIP leadership uh, contest. He's yes. replacing Diane James, who only lasted 18 days. Nigel Farage seemed determined to make sure that he, he really was handing over the reins. He had the leadership papers with him on stage to make sure Nuttall signed. But it, I thought it was striking that although they're quite similar, they're both, you know, I imagine we're going to see pictures of Paul Nuttall drinking in pubs. He is trying to take the party in a different direction. Well, I mean, the, the problem UKIP has had lately is that the party is... I don't mean this in a terribly pejorative way, but it's basically a lie, right? This is a right-wing, socially conservative <laughs> party which was founded for the purpose of, of getting us out of Europe and then became more right than the Tories, picked up a huge wave of support against David Cameron's kind of sort of metropolitan liberalising agenda, kicked off mainly with, with, the, with the equal marriage debate, picked up really sort of far, far stronger then. What they're trying to do now is reposition, as they say, to the Labour heartlands. And it's not at all clear that they have anything really to say to the Labour heartlands. Yes, it's possible for a right-wing party to appeal to, to working-class voters. Thatcher certainly managed it, but her message was economic, principally. Uh, what exactly UKIP is going to do when, I mean, pretty much all of their sort of fan founding policies involve making the poor poorer, whether they can keep any of their original backing at all, any of their party members in swivelling and pointing towards towards the areas that they want to win in sort of remains to be seen. What works slightly in their favour is that voters might not care. Well, I was going to say that, that actually... Does it matter that UKIP's economic policies don't add up or what the implications might be? It might just be that they strike a chord with sure, voters I mean, who, who feel that other parties aren't. For now, I think that's right, but there's got to be a threshold. 
if at the moment they had their last election they had what four million mm. voters and they had this dis- despite being madder than a sack full of cats you know and everything <laughs> they said was insane and they thought you know these are the same people who were later knocking each other out in, in, in the European Parliament you know they weren't a coherent functioning party yet they still picked up four million voters the point is whether is it possible to double that without having anything sensible to say and I'm not clear they do Sam should Labour be worried uh, yes um, I mean I think Hugo's got an interesting point but that rather feels like you know, politics 1.0 rather than politics 2.0, which is where we are post-Brexit, post-Trump. I'm not sure that politicians necessarily have to have aspirational agenda in order to be elected. Just look at some of the votes um, recently, not least in the United States. I think what they will do incredibly well is pivot against a Labour Party that will struggle to claim that it reaches out to Labour heartlands that voted overwhelmingly for leave in the referendum, partly because of their views on Europe, partly because of the views of their own personal situations. And I think that politics these days does well, and you can think that this is fortunate or unfortunate, it does well when it pivots against somebody, it demonises somebody, when it rouses passions. We are just in an age where moderate centre ground doesn't seem to be capturing the mood of the times. Moderate centre ground politicians need to work harder to do that. But just at the moment, does there look like an open sitting goal for somebody who's prepared to ramp up the rhetoric to grab some of those northern heartlands that Labour have in, in sort of trusted as being their own for decades and decades, but have, but as a consequence um, got a bit complacent and haven't really worked on. Yes, I think there probably is. It's not a slam dunk. I don't know what's going to happen. But I certainly know that uh, Labour in the north of England looks incredibly disconnected from, from Jeremy Corbyn in the north of London. And in that gap is, the route, is a path for somebody who is able to, you know, for a party that's able to weaponise and demonise discontent in a way that other votes recently have done. I, I I wouldn't particularly disagree with any of that but it comes down in the end they've got to say something and to give a remarkable way to begin a sentence but to give Donald Crump his credit at least he was saying something to the economically disaffected voters of America he was saying to them your factories that have closed and are closing I will reopen by bringing this work back from X Y and Z you can't really say that in the north in Britain because the factories are gone People don't work in factories. But, but, the, but, but, but yeah, the, the factories have gone in America. I mean, it's basically uh, well, it's, sure, it's basically a lie. But they still Donald have Trump's make. But it was it, it, it's it's it's, a, it's a nostalgic thing. Sure, but, for, but, but you go but you go to the north of England and say I'm going to reopen your mines. People are like, well, screw you. I'm not going to work down a mine. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 a it's a completely different. There's, yeah. there's but, not there's not this cult of the blue collar worker which mm. which Trump Trump rode on. That you haven't got that. They they may find something else, I, but they need some narrative to find. I, I think that's aspirational for our politics. I think it is. I, I, I think. <laughs> (laughs) it is entirely possible for for UKIP uh, to announce that they're in favour of Britain Works, which would be a debt-funded Trump-style works programme that's going to get loads of people back into jobs uh, and revive the north of England as they campaign against quantitative easing, Bank of of England's money-printing scheme that's widened inequality, ruined your savings and made uh, house prices unaffordable. All of this is completely possible and completely tenable for UKIP to do. Is it real? Was it real when Trump did it? Who knows? But does it matter anymore? I think the, the jury's out. No, but what do you make of Paul Nuttall? Have you made anything of Paul Nuttall? You, you've been on HMS Ocean, so you are allowed to be not completely abreast of the UKIP policy platform. The thing that, that struck out um, to me was his policy on Russia, um, which is quite alarming, or at least on Syria. So he's, he's sort of buying into this narrative that Trump also seems to have um, latched onto, that actually Putin's not such a bad guy after all. And what's happening in Syria, everyone knows it's a complete mess. The West have made a bit of a bad job of it. These rebels, do they really deserve our support? Actually, let's sign up with Putin and, you know, 
bomb the hell out of ISIS, as Trump puts it so succinctly. Just, it just sort of belies a total lack of understanding of the complexity of the problem uh, and also a naivety when it comes to dealing with Putin. And he's, he talked as well about Assad being on our side in this uh, this fight against ISIS. And it, it does feel a bit like, far from UKIP and Nigel Farage influencing the Donald Trump playbook, actually the opposite seems to be happening, that, that UKIP seems to be just picking up what, you know, if it worked for Trump, so, you know, we like ISIS. We, we don't, no, we don't like ISIS. They, they like Assad and Putin and bringing back people's jobs and they'll just repeat all the same stuff. And that seem you know, they seem to be banking on the idea that that will resonate. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, they, they also, and they always have done this, they've made a big sort of platform for the, the military, for the army, yeah. for supporting the armed forces. Um, and that does ring quite, it does sort of capture sympathy amongst the military. I'm not saying there's like a big swathe of UKIP supporters in the military at all, but there is a, a huge sense of betrayal um, from repeated Tory and Labour governments of the armed forces in the way that they've you know, slashed budgets and not supported them um, in in conflicts, not given them the right sort of equipment, etc. Um, and so when you have a party that is saying all the right kind of things about the army in particular, then um, that does potentially win, win them votes. I thought that his army line, I thought, was absolutely fascinating because it came it came just after he'd been saying we're not going to obsess about all these North London Islington dinner party conversations. I'm sure I'm sure we've all been to North London Islington dinner parties. <laughs> you know, what, I don't think really, actually I've ever been to a dinner party in North London. Oh, well, I've 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 been I've been to some and it's 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 basically it's basically sort of like schools and house prices like everywhere. Really. <laughs> um, you know, very rarely discussing Palestine. I but, um, went to your house and I haven't been back. Well, I don't live in Islington. How dare you? I <laughs> did you did um, you keep talking about Palestine? Maybe that was. It. <laughs> um, but he said this, and then he started t- saying, "And we're going to, and and we're going to be the party that supports the army." And again, it's very. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure UKIP is capable of speaking to the people they need to speak to. I, I agree. There's probably a, a space for a party that that great, the more greatly supports the army. But I don't really. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't really see the army as being this sort of northern heartland obsession. You know, where, where the army has been politicised in Britain before, it's generally been an obsession of the the middle classes and almost the upper middle classes. And and, and I, I mean, which is not to say that, that represents the army itself, but it's almost the other way around. You can speak to the army, but if you're speaking to the army, how much of Britain's working classes care? Well, no, that's not that's not that's not too strictly true. I mean, obviously the the, the upper classes would be all the officers, but there is a big. Well, but it's, but it's, 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 there's a small. The, you know, the the soldiers that make up the army are. Oh, working class but the big but thing to remember absolutely yeah. but the big thing to remember is because of successive governments cutting the military the army is so small to be almost insignificant into which way yeah, it votes exactly but it's about them speaking to the squaddies rather than the officers and sure, this but, but there aren't that many idea squaddies. of making Britain no, no, but, but there are more squaddies than officers yeah, yes but, but, but the <laughs> but the idea that, that the squaddies set, set the tone for the uh, for the culture of their communities is just a slightly old one I think no, but I think it but it does in, in you know, they don't listen to like they don't sort of listen to their officers telling them you know talking politics yeah, sure. the squaddies will talk to themselves about what they think but yeah, yeah. they but, don't really but talk again, about politics but. but but there aren't there aren't very many of them and um and and, and i'm i'm sure if if, if you i think it's i think it's it's a, it's a strange notion to think you can understand what the north of england thinks by understanding what squaddies think and just i mean what the, the thing that the UKIP clearly has an advantage over the Labour Party on is immigration. The Labour Party is tying itself into total knots about what it thinks its immigration policy should be. Lots of Labour MPs seem to characterise Diane Abbott as basically saying the more the merrier. They don't think there need to be any limits on freedom of movement. And that, that seems, particularly given that large swathes of northern Labour heartlands voted mm-hmm. for leave, it's assumed in large part because of concerns about immigration. T- talking about that seems to strike yeah. right at the heart of those people. But the Tories have got that too now, do they not? Or at least they're trying to. I think the bigger problem 
than the sort of subject matter that they reach out on is simply whether UKIP can remain a united force and a disciplined force uh, <laughs> a, a, ahead. I think they'll, they'll they'll get there with with a message. I'm sure a few focus groups will help them along the way. The question is whether the big hitters, Aaron Banks, but more importantly Nigel Farage, throw that continues to throw their weight behind the party. That's not a given. And whether the lesser figures um, who you can read about in um, the further back pages of the Times continue to tear apart the party and each other to general merriment and not and not much point. I think that is the biggest challenge facing uh, UKIP and there are three years to craft a disciplined message on which to fight the next general election um, but being all able to be in the same room first um, <laughs> seems just at this point to be a bigger struggle. It was it was astonishing seeing the party chairman introducing their new leader with a speech which described how they'd had a Benny Hill summer yes. uh, which I thought was absolutely well, brilliant. Exactly. I think Nuttall's quite good but I don't think there's many like him. Yes well we shall see. I'm sure we will come back to him. Uh, now though uh, Deborah let's move on and talk about your normal beat. The Royal Navy is veering on the edge of crisis. The service has too few warships, far too few sailors, and the government does not have enough money, despite protestations to the contrary, to fix the problem. Affordable warships, rather than the current Gucci vessels that become almost too expensive to fight on the fear of losing them, could enable the Navy to regrow the fleet within the confines of a limited budget. So Deborah, we've just seen this review by Sir John Parker looking at the way that the Navy is being depleted by, he calls it a vicious cycle of old ships which are kept beyond their sell-by date and then they wait too long for the new ships and when they come they're too expensive. And what, what, how, how can they break that, that cycle? There are a number of factors that have created this problem. The first one is a lack of money. I mean, the MOD has been reducing or has reduced the amount that it's spent on invested in ships over the you know over the the last few decades and more than that the programs that it has had for warships have been really poorly managed um, and that's a procurement problem within the MOD itself so there's like defense equipment and support which is the big equipment procuring branch of MOD and also industry and um, the problem has been that um, the UK shipbuilding industry because of the um, the shrink in demand it's meant that that there's been a, a fight over who can be you know, the, the, the the toughest has won, and you've got BAE Systems, which has effectively become a monopoly um, shipbuilder for the MOD, and there, therefore it kind of holds government hostage, in the sense that the government has to play ball with BAE Systems because they have the technology and um, they have the engineers and you know, the shipbuilding know-how. Um, so, so we just have to pay the price, whatever. So you have to pay the price, whatever. And so so, Sir so John Parker, he was sort of sent sent off to, to make it, to do a review, which is reported today, to come up with an idea of how you can make ships more affordable because at the moment, the problem you've got is, for example, the Type 45 destroyers, which have made the news for all the wrong reasons um, in recent months because of their engines falling down, uh, engines sort of breaking down, despite the fact that we spent a billion pounds on each of them. That programme initially was supposed to produce far more ships. And, and when you have a, a bigger number of ships, then you have economies of scale, so the actual price tag for each vessel becomes smaller. But because of a, um, because of a, a lack of money, um, because of poor management of the programme, which meant that it was taking longer, that the cost of the programme initially was completely underestimated, which meant then that... Um, that investment decisions were delayed in order to make them more affordable, which makes sense in the short term, but in the long run, p- 
pushes up the bill. It meant that in the end, the government had to shrink the number of, of Type 45 destroyers they were going to buy in the first place. But then that makes them more, more expensive. Makes them more expensive and then also creates that problem when they're too expensive and too valuable to lose. And so... <laughs> so, they get, so they don't go anywhere. So they don't, it's just, it's terrible. And it's like with the, um, with, the, with the aircraft carriers, which have been another huge debacle. And that was largely created, that largely happened under the Labour government when you had this situation where they became too expensive to cancel. I don't know if you remember, the contract yeah. was put, drawn up so badly by the MOD, by DNS, because the industry has all the expertise. Well, they don't sort of have all the expertise, but they, you know, they're sort of in a, they're sort of commercial enterprises, whereas the MOD is not used to being like that, that they sort of you know, run rings around the government. And that was how we ended up with aircraft carriers that weren't going to have any aircraft. That we don't. We are going to end up with aircraft carriers that don't have or have very, very, very so few aircraft to be laughable. I mean, I was on um, HMS Ocean last week, and I know that's uh, a different kind of vessel. It's a it's a helicopter carrier. Um, we flew um, onto um, USS Dwight Eisenhower, um, which is a big American aircraft carrier, and then hopped onto Ocean. And Eisenhower had sixty eight aircraft on board, including forty four fast jets. And then you go over to uh, HMS Ocean, and it had little, sort of one lonely Merlin helicopter, um, <laughs> which. You know, it did have it had had eight previous, you know, a few weeks earlier, but yeah, it just kind of gives you an idea of the of how we're trying to play with the big boys, but we don't have the same number of toys. Is that the problem, Sam? There's still this idea that Britain rules the waves and we punch above our weight on military terms, and actually, a combination of a lack of cash and a lack of political will just means that we we can't and we shouldn't try. I think that does basically answer it. I mean, to say something quite unfair to the military. The military are just not very high up number 10 or indeed the media's list of political priorities at the moment. In 2010, the uh, uh, Comprehensive Spending Review and the defence element of that was extremely politically sensitive uh, and the number of warships that were going to be built and the types of uh, aircraft that were to adorn them and the year that they came in felt far more important uh, then than they do now. It took Theresa May weeks before she had a full meeting with the various Joint Chiefs of Staffs from uh, across the services and her essential worldview seems to be a disinclination to get involved in overseas conflicts and, and, and brutally unless we are involved in overseas conflicts um, uh, in a sort of major way, then this issue uh, does drop down the political agenda because it becomes a question of rather knotty PFI and other, you know, private contractors, you know, contract negotiations where you get too little information and it's very hard to work out you know, what's going on with the contract until it's horrifically gone wrong. Theresa May, I don't think, has any sh ever shown any great sort of interest in this world. She hasn't tried to correct that since becoming Prime Minister. So in an environment where Brexit, the NHS, and just, you know, and, and just managing to coin a phrase is, is basically <laughs> where she is in politics, the, uh, she, I think she would be quite happy if she got regular routine but not terribly frequent updates from um, the people over the road in the MOD building. And most importantly of all, they just didn't present any problems at her doorstep. But that's, like, that's a really... Um uh, that's such a dangerous view that yes. all our politicians have that we believe that the status quo that we, our generation, has inherited um, from the end of the Second World War is by right the status of the world order and the West will always be safe and secure and we will always have our tidy NATO alliance and we will always be able to choose the battles that we want to fight and that is just a complete misunderstanding of the reality. I mean we're seeing, we've seen the way that um, Vladimir Putin has, has acted ever since the um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia, you know, Russia has been on on a war footing. Everything it does is about re-establishing the world order 
pre, you know, during that it, it enjoyed before that moment. And um, we have fooled ourselves into believing that Russia can be an, uh, you know, an, an ally and and the way and, and it thinks like us and it wants to enjoy the, the same kind of freedoms that we enjoy. And that's just a complete fallacy. And because of the um, the peace dividend that we've enjoyed, we've been able to um, to invest in the NHS and make education, which obviously is hugely important, a huge priority. And me as a very obviously, you know, it's not a huge priority. Defence journalist, I find it so frustrating every election that the that the military defence is is so down the list of priorities. Every government comes on and says, "Oh yes, you know, security is the first uh, priority of any government." Utter nonsense. Why? If that's the truth, then why not demonstrate that? Why not ensure that you are putting in the correct resources to ensure that uh, if a war that is not of our choice happens, we are able to defend ourselves. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an interventionist. I'm not a hawk. I'm not a supporter of UKIP. But all these people are right about the extent to which we've downgraded our military and how, and how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is, and we take it for granted. One of the, one of the most alarming, basically, the bit of Trump's victory that made me lie awake staring at the ceiling when I heard about it long into the night was what he says about NATO. Was what he was his 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 keenness for America to not be so involved in NATO. And uh, I mean, uh, Debbie, you, you'll, you'll know the you'll know the stats, but I think in terms of fighting forces, America contributes what's something like seventy five percent of NATO forces thereabouts. Yes. And now. Uh, this is a this is a situation that was established in an age when your average American was far richer than your average European. It's simply not the case anymore. So when Trump says that America is pulling far beyond its weight on NATO, he's absolutely right. We've learned to take it for granted. Germany's learned to take it for granted. The entirety of Europe's learned to take it for granted. It will not happen forever. And I think it's horribly possible that one day we wake up, if not us, then our children wake up, and they're living in a fat, undefended, undefended continent with beset by enemies all around. And um, and I don't see any any long-term strategic or even short-term planning to sort of to even think about that or worry about that do, uh, so here's a question about who's to blame and how you get out of it do you think that in order to change government's attitudes towards the military you need to change politicians attitudes towards the military which requires the public to change its attitude towards the military or do you think a benevolent government might just change of its own because I think what I see in people uh, in, amongst MPs in Westminster is is a feeling that there is no constituency in the country that is putting this as a particularly high issue on their agenda, and therefore it's not something that other than a hand, small handful of MPs uh, that play, pay a close interest, for, often for various background reasons in the military, that, that, that it's an issue that they need to particularly worry about. So the question is, it, does it require a government to act in our best interests, or does there need to be a change of heart amongst the people, as it were, and how, do, and how do you get well, there? Well, I mean, both, first, first and foremost... Doesn't I think, it basically take a shock? Doesn't for, it take a problem to develop before we're going to get this higher up the agenda? Well, first and foremost, defence procurement could stop being so terribly, terribly shit all the time. And um, if I'm allowed, can I say shit? Well, you've twice, said it twice now. Three times. But it, <laughs> Don't but I mean, say it again. But I mean, just I mean, the, 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 the amount, the, the chaos, the chaos of the, of the aircraft carriers with their aircraft and so on and so on, that no one's got on top of. When they try and get on top of it, they just make it worse. That's a problem you solve. You don't even need particular a democratic mandate to solve that problem. You just fix it. In terms of how you get a, a greater political constituency to care about the military, I'm not quite sure. Well, and I, I, I thought about this a lot because I've, I just don't understand why people don't un, don't have it as a greater priority. And I think it's only people who've actually experienced conflict who understand the fragility of peace. And therefore, I, sadly, I don't think that anyone in the UK will wake up to the utter fundamental importance of having a fully uh, funded military that can actually work until that shock happens. 
Well, on that cheery note, let's um, let's move on to our final. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Topic and uh, Theresa May in particular, Sam. Will Theresa May's popularity be her downfall? And even as I say those words, I'm imagining groans from the Tory government tykes for what they'll see as willfully unconstructive pessimism from me. But hear me out. May is impregnable in the country. But don't forget, there are three ways that a prime minister can be toppled. While few doubt that she'd win a general election, there could be a cabinet revolt or a catastrophic defeat in Parliament. She's got a very slim majority. There are still open wounds from top to bottom in the Tory party, and she's going to work in, have to work incredibly hard to keep papering them over. It might not feel it, but I think she's still in her honeymoon period. There is this concern that uh, because we don't really have what anyone would call a functioning opposition, the government is sort of gliding along. It's not doing a huge amount. It's not coming under a lot of pressure. It's not just on Brexit, but on other areas as well. But you think that there's there's danger built into that? Up and down Whitehall, figures from number 10, Casey Perrier from number 10, is going around showing and telling people about the results of various focus groups that have been going on. And, and she stresses that Theresa May is incredibly popular with the public. And the public aren't baying at her door for more details on Brexit, aren't desperately questioning the way that she runs her government, and they just want her to go ahead and get on with governing and be left alone to, to, to do so. The Conservative Party is deeply divided, and I think in the, with the absence of the opposition, it's, the lack of a functioning Labour Party allows Tory MPs to feel that they can put more pressure on Theresa May, uh, that they can be a bit more rebellious because there are no electoral consequences for them doing so. Um, I think that, however, that there are divisions that go right the way to Cabinet over the direction of Brexit. Um, somebody said to me that nobody in the Brexit Cabinet Committee would have said anything that would surprise you. They were all playing exactly the roles in that committee that you, it, you would expect them to play. In other words, the Brexiteers are standing up for Brexiteer arguments and the Remainers are standing up for Remain arguments and worrying about how it will go. And the job that Theresa May faces next year in 2017 just looks horrendous and incredibly difficult. And she's got two big problems. She has to keep that cabinet and ministers together. And she has to deal with all of that with a majority of about 12, or if you include the DUP, somewhere around 30, in the face of dozens of MPs who take a hard line inside the Conservative Party on either side of the argument. And that is a hell of a challenge. So I think the greater flexibility that Tories feel to be naughty is going to cause us some difficulty. Hugo, do you think there's a sense that after the EU referendum and 
all the bitterness of it all and then the fallout immediately afterwards. The public just want politicians to go away. They think the decision's been made. Just go and make it. Just sort it out. I don't want to hear about yeah. daily updates sure. on Article 50 and everyone agrees that the, the customs union. Everyone agrees that the decision's been made. No one agrees what the decision is. And this is the problem. <laughs> no one wants to hear about it, but somebody's got to decide. And so you have... You have this sort of firm conviction among some people that, of course, Brexit means leaving the single market and of, and every bit, leaving every bit of, of our settlement with the EU and rebuilding again from the ground up in a much more favourable way. And then you have this equally firm conviction among other people that's like, well, of course we didn't vote for that. We voted to leave the EU. We voted on the Norway model. There was a time when people like Farage used to say we could be Norway. You know, so it's a, we didn't, maybe we didn't vote for that, but that would be a completely acceptable reading of the Brexit vote. These two sides are completely irre- irreconcilable. There's no middle ground or common, or common ground between them. And the public doesn't want to listen to either of them, really. They just want somebody to take it away and make it right and fine. I almost feel a bit sorry for both, for, for both the government and the Labour Party at the moment, because on one level, the government is... I mean, this is the, this is the, least, the least functioning, worst popular government I've ever seen. You know, it's very popular and, as far as I can make out, pretty much rubbish at everything. Um, <laughs> but the reasons for why it's rubbish at everything... I mean, it, it's not... It's not, um, it's not coincidence that they face a rubbish opposition. The reason why Labour has nothing to say is, apart from Corbyn, that's there for the same reasons that the government can't really say anything either. Nobody has quite decided what Brexit means yet. Until there is something to have an argument about, there's no discussion really to be had. And so they're both just kind of floundering around. Deborah, how, how much longer do you think this floundering can go on for? It seems that it's interesting that you've got Downing Street kind of trying to big up Theresa May's popularity and how the public doesn't really care too much about the details. That's hugely convenient for them. Because I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I obviously only see it from my little area of the world in MOD land. But I find it really frightening this huge control over the message that you have from Downing Street. And it was kind of bad under David Cameron, but it's become even worse under Theresa May. Um, And they are desperate to control the message that comes out about anything to do with Brexit. And it's obviously really difficult because clearly there are difficult conversations that are going on. I mean, all the furore we had this morning with that, the sort of photographed notes from... The have cake and eat it notes. Exactly. It's just an example of something out of their control, offering an insight into the chaos. And they, you know, they're just desperate to kind of cover that up. Um, And it affects everything. It affects all other walks of government. Nobody's able, no one, it does, it feels as though, it feels really unhealthy the way that they are controlling every kind of message. The interesting thing, Sam, is that the the Downing Street of Theresa May and Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill is behaving even more controlling than the Downing Street they used to complain about when they were in the Home Office. They used to constantly fight back from number 10 control of the grid and control of the message and telling them to do things or to not do things. And yet that, you know, they're, they're running it even more tight than that. Yeah. We've got to be quite careful about what we're complaining about and what we're not complaining about. I don't think many people think that we should know Theresa May's red lines in the upcoming negotiation. Clearly, there are things that we definitely want and we might want and we might be happy to see traded away and and that we'll definitely trade away in return for something. And I think all of those, most people would accept are within the purview of the Prime Minister. But what she's doing is something else. She's discouraging and, in fact, in effect, banning 
debate by anybody in government about Brexit. So there are massive issues. And indeed, one person said to me that it, the really big one is the customs union. The customs union, which uh, a thing which I apologise to listeners, few of them will have heard of, even fewer of them will care about, is probably the most complicated element of Brexit uh, that nobody knows about yet. Um, and she simply doesn't, she is simply not allowing uh, provide, helping anybody understand what it means, what the various uh, permutations and options are for where Britain could go. And this will make an enormous difference to the future of our country. And yet debate is, to all intents and purposes, being shut down on this issue. Theresa May looks like somebody who doesn't enjoy public debate, public discourse, back and forth. She just wants think everyone to agree with her when she comes to a decision that that decision is right. It's a different model of government. Whether or not it works remains to be seen because she basically doesn't like being seen to get to any conclusion in public. She wants to do it all behind closed doors. I'm not sure it's sustainable to have a government which shuts down discussion on all on, on the options and where we might go to and the manner of the, the even the plan about a plan uh, so that everything can be done by her uh, in secret and and without much understanding of of where of where we're heading so i think um red lines is one thing but not having any debate about the significant areas of complexity around brexit is completely unsustainable the danger it seems to me is twofold firstly for as long as we don't know what they're doing there will always be the suspicion they're not doing anything <laughs> um, you know, because we don't know what conversations are happening over Brexit, how far negotiations have got, what conclusions they've come to about even what to shoot for. It's very easy to find yourself believing they haven't done anything. They're just sitting there going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, like, like nonstop, month after month, basically doing nothing. Quite a large part of me does believe that's basically happening. The, 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 the other danger, because this government is not, it's not even owning the Brexit side of the argument, other people are starting to own the Brexit side of the argument. So the, the the massive noise of the likes of, not quite UKIP, but certainly Farage and Banks and people like that, as if they won as if they won the referendum. You've got to keep remembering, they didn't win the referendum. They were the oddballs that the people who did win the referendum didn't want anything to do with. Yet they now own the Brexit narrative because the government is not is not talking it, is not saying it. Um, just very quickly, um, does the government have a plan or is it just going, oh my God, oh my God? I mean, that's kind of our job to find out. Mm. And my assessment of where they are is that they are having private meetings where they're being handed 80-page documents on different aspects of, Bre of Brexit. They all ask a few probing questions and all agree they need more information at the end of it and as of now not i'm told not really any decisions have been taken but the problem with that is that we've essentially had four months of a seven month period before uh, we trigger article 50 in march meaning that all key decisions need to be taken in the next three months and everybody i've spoken to just looks like that's quite an optimistic thing to be able to to, to have to aim for and so we had the extraordinary spectacle of the Prime Minister giving an interview to the Sunday Times magazine, pages and pages and pages. And the most notable thing was her chocolate leather trousers. But I think that's um, probably one for the Pandolly podcast rather than for us. Um, that's, I'm afraid, all we've got time for uh, this week. Do remember to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes on your Android device so you get it delivered to your phone every week. Do post reviews if uh, you want to, and we'll try and uh, we'll dedicate the show to you uh, next week. Uh, get in touch by email redbox at thetimes.co.uk and tweet us at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. And as ever, sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, from Deborah, Sam, Hugo and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.